0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.
1: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Erora from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, Please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David rose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man." So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has the lord, my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to the king, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning. Let's pray. God, our Father, we've been reminded this morning of your servant Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When you spoke, he listened and he responded. And now, our God, may we have the heart and the attitude Of Abraham, for you have spoken. May we listen and may we respond. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, our Father, for we ask it. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of a rather long series in the two books of Samuel. And we've come to the last chapter of the book of Samuel that's just been read to us. Now, what do you expect from a last chapter? Have you ever uh, been reading a book uh, and you skipped ahead to the last chapter? I know you have. I've done that. Why do we do that? Well, we want to see how the conflict gets resolved. We want to see how all the loose ends get tied up. We want to see... The conclusion, it gives us a sense of closure. We don't really get that here, do we? Uh, A little while back, Susie and I were watching a a TV series. Uh, It was an older TV series, and we quite enjoyed it. And we got to the last episode of that series, and it didn't really leave you with a sense of closure. There was still a lot of loose ends, and the conflict was sort of resolved, but not really. Obviously, to keep you looking for the next season, which never came. And so you didn't get that sense of closure that you want from a last chapter. And we don't get a happily ever ending, uh, happily ever after ending in this chapter as well, do we? No, instead, we get a plague, and not just a plague, but a famine. For we read in the first verse again, notice the again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, again, refers back to chapter 21 when the Lord's anger was also kindled against Israel, and we have there um, a famine. So, both the famine in chapter 21 and the plague in chapter 24 were the result of the Lord's anger against Israel. So we have these two seemingly random events in chapter 21 and chapter 24, plucked from the life of David and set here in these last four chapters. But they frame for us two beautiful pieces of poetry. One in chapter 22 where David reflects upon God's faithfulness to him in the past And his last words in chapter 23, where he worships God for his faithfulness in the future. And that teaches us that even in the face of man's failure, God uses even man's failure as an occasion to demonstrate his surpassing grace. Which is why I've titled this sermon this morning, Where Sin Increased, Grace Abounded taken, of course, from Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Now, when we consider a story like this together in the Bible, what we like to do is go up about 30,000 feet, and we like to understand how the chapter fits in to the whole book. But because we're dealing with the last chapter of the book, I thought we would aim for a higher altitude even than that. Maybe we do a flyover at about 100,000 feet and actually see how this book of Samuel that we're about to leave fits into the whole flow of Scripture, going right back to Genesis. Unless you're concerned about that, I'll do that in about three minutes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in them. And then he made man in his own image and placed him in the garden. And for an unspecified period of time, he enjoyed fellowship with his creation, made in his own image in the garden. For God is a relational being. But Adam and Eve turned from God and led the human race into sin, culminating in the flood that destroyed all man and beast from off the face of the earth. But there was a man by the name of Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord spared him and his family on the ark. After the ark, once again, man turned to sin, culminating in the Tower of Babel. And God again had to intervene. But from the rubble of Babel arose a man by the name of Abraham who God called out. And he believed God, as we've already said, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so God promised him that from his seed he would raise up a nation greater than the stars, the number of the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seas, and place him in the land of Canaan where God again could dwell among his people and enjoy their fellowship. There was problems in the family of Abraham, and after Abraham's death, the children of Jacob, the children of of Israel, were sold into slavery in Egypt and remained there for 400 years. But God raised up a man by the name of Moses, who led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness where he gave them the law the commandments of God, and he gave them a tabernacle where God could dwell again among his people. Moses' successor Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan and drove out the idolatrous inhabitants of the land, but not all were driven out. And after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel turned once again to the idols of the nations around them, and God raised up their enemies against them. And in their agony they cried out to the Lord and God from time to time raised up judges who gave them a measure of relief from the enemies that were troubling them. But it was a difficult time. For there was no king over Israel, as we read repeatedly in the judges. There was no king over Israel, but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there was sorrowful consequences for that. And that brings us to the book of Samuel. The last judge was a man by the name of Samuel, and he was more than a judge. He was both a prophet and a priest. And he was a godly man, and he led Israel back to God. But Samuel's children, alas, did not follow in the ways of God And as the people anticipated the departure of Samuel, they desired a king that would um, would reign over them as the nations, And, and against his better judgment and against the wishes of God, Samuel, who was the kingmaker, anointed for them a man by the name of Saul, whose reign was nothing but a mess and a failure. But it paved the way for God's servant David, a man after God's own heart, to reign over the people. David, the shepherd king, a man after God's own heart. And David, being a man after God's own heart, again, desires the presence of God among them and desires to build a permanent place for God to dwell in. And God is pleased with this. And he promises David an eternal kingdom, a promise that is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. And that's the history. That's how Samuel is placed within God's redemptive plan in scriptures. So the book of Samuel sees the transition from 12 loosely affiliated tribes who have no king where everyone does what is right in their own eyes to a unified eternal kingdom under a man after God's own heart. But the transition is a difficult one for um, Israel. Both Saul and David and even Samuel were imperfect rulers and their failures brought great sorrow upon the land and upon the people. But in spite of their failures, God again and again shows his mercy. And even in their failures, their failures provide an occasion for God to show his mercy and grace and to cause us to long for the rest and blessing that will come under the kingship. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. So that's why again we've entitled the sermon Where Sin Abounded, or Where Sin Increased, Grace Abounded. So with that context, with that overview, let's take a look at this story that's been read to us from 2 Samuel 24. God's anger is kindled against Israel, and he deals with them. By allowing their king to make a decision that results in severe consequences for the nation. The sin is David numbering his standing army. And despite warnings from his commander, Joab, he goes ahead and does it anyway. Once he receives the results of the census, the fruit of his sin, his conscience smites him, and he goes to God in repentance. Though forgiven... There are consequences in his sin, and God sends to him his servant Gad and gives him a choice as to the consequences of his sin. Three years, three months, or three days. Famine, um, famine or uh, fleeing from his enemies or plague. David, in distress, chooses to fall into the hands of God, and God sends a plague from which there are 70,000 casualties. But after one day, God comes to Israel and he relents. But David doesn't know that the punishment has passed, and in anguish as he sees the consequences of his sin, he cries out to God that the sin would be upon him and upon his children. God again sends to him his servant Gad, And sends David to a place called the threshing floor of Arna the Jebusite. And um, um, uh, chooses that place for David to build an altar to the Lord. And once the altar is built and a sacrifice offered, the plague is stayed. And as we get in the parallel account of this story, David, through this experience, discovers that this is the site for the temple, which is his lifelong work. So that's what we have in our chapter. Now, from there, let's go to do the work of exposition together on this chapter, where we come under, again, the authority of Scripture. There may be some things in this chapter you don't like, but we don't get to leave them out. It's the Word of God. There may be some things that you'd like to add or that I might like to add. We don't get to do it. We come under the authority of Scripture. But as we go through this together, let's remember that one of the key purposes of Scripture is to show us how God deals with his people both in Discipline and in mercy. I want to give you uh, something to um, hold on to as we go through this, and so I'm going to break the the, uh, chapter. You know, I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to break the chapter into three topics God's grace in restraining, God's gift of repentance, and God's grace in relenting. God's grace in restraining, God's gift. Of repentance and God's grace in relenting. Now, before we do this, before we get to our first point, we need to get a question off the table so that it's not bothering us uh, through this whole sermon, and it hasn't got you to focus. And that question is, what's wrong with a census? What's the problem with a census? Now, you may recall that when we were going through our More Than Conqueror series back in May, I already spoke on this story, not from Second Samuel 24, but rather from the parallel account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. That may raise the question for you, why is this same story repeated twice in Scripture? We don't have time to get into that now. Might be a great question for the Q&A. Other than to say that the writer of Chronicles had a different purpose for recording this story than the writer of Samuel. And in that sermon, I talked about the reasons why this was a very sinful thing, and I'm not going to go over all of that again, other than to say this. The sin was not in conducting a census. Censuses were uh, conducted in Israel all the time. The problem with it is why it was conducted and possibly how it was conducted. So in order to understand that, let's look back at what David's possible reasons for conducting this census probably were, and it's going to help us to understand why it was odious in the sight of the Lord. If we go back to chapter 22... And we read uh, verses three to four. We read this. David says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. That's David at his best. Recognizing the source of strength and security and salvation is the Lord and the Lord alone. And with his eyes fixed on the Lord, he is strong and he writes these tremendous words. But, like Peter, who is walking across the water on those waves with his eyes on the Lord, he was fine. But when he got his eyes off the Lord, onto the waves and to the billows, he feels himself starting to sink. and he and david did the same thing and suddenly he runs to the tangible sources of security his standing army and he wants to know just how powerful they are in comparison to his enemies and you could see how that might happen perhaps he heard of a new king that had arisen a violent person i don't know this um, and, and perhaps it created a sense of fear in his heart. Maybe he had a nightmare about being overtaken by his enemy and his family's falling to the sword of his enemy or something like this, and there was fear in his heart, and suddenly there was a strong desire to assess the strength of his standing army to give him peace over the constant threat of attack. You know, we don't see sin, or we don't see fear as a very serious sin, do we, if we see it as a sin at all. We regard the countless places in Scripture where we are commanded not to fear, not as commandments, but as suggestions, as opportunities, an invitation, uh, which we can choose to accept or reject depending on how dire the circumstances are. The Puritan writer John Flavel put it this way, and I quote, We cannot fear creatures sinfully until we have forgotten God. Did we remember who God is and what he has said we should not be of such feeble spirits? Bring yourself then to this reflection in times of danger. If I let into my heart the slavish fear of man, I must let out the reverential awe of God. And dare I cast off the fear of the Almighty for the disapproval of man? Shall I lift up proud dust above the great God? Shall I run on a certain sin to avoid a potential danger? Oh, keep thy heart by this consideration. Quote. But we need to remember that the greater the position of leadership, the greater the consequences are when the leader falls into a time of sinful fear. A fearful, overprotective parent produces a child who is unable to engage the world because they are weighed down by countless insecurities and phobias. And a leader who panics in the face of adversity and embraces the fear of man rather than the fear of God teaches his congregation to do the exact same thing regardless of what he preaches. So giving into fear is sin. And when that sin is not dealt with, It can turn away many from God. So it was not a small thing. This was the problem, right? When Israel was about to go into the promised land that God had told them they could take and then they look at the giants around them and they fear and they panic rather than trusting God and refuse to go in and that generation is kept out of the land. So let's not downplay the seriousness of fear. Now, the other question we need to deal with is who incited David to sin? Who incited David to sin? We read in in verse 21 of chapter 24, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. But when we read the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, we read, And Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So who was it? Who incited David? Was it the Lord or was it Satan? Now, again, talked about this in the other sermon, but let's just remember this. The Lord does not tempt his people to sin. There are countless times when we are tempted to do what we ought not to do. And we pray, this is why we pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And God graciously preserves us from the temptations that we are drawn into. But occasionally, God can withhold his hand, his restraining hand, and allow Satan his point. But, he, but Satan is always limited to what God allows. And God only allows that to serve his ultimate purpose. So Satan tempted David to number the people. And on this occasion, God allowed Satan <clears throat> to deceive David. And it's, and it's for a purpose. Now, it's not the first time that David was tempted to do something that would result in tremendous sorrow and discipline on the people of God. Twice already, he had been tempted to kill God's anointed Saul. Another time, in a moment of passion, he was tempted to kill Nabal. And another time, he was actually tempted to take up arms with the Philistines and fight against God's own people. And from each one of these temptations, God preserved him. But not this time. Not this time. This time, God allows Satan his point, And why? Because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It's a very important point. And that takes us to our point, God's grace in restraining. It is God's grace <clears throat> to restrain a nation, or it's God's grace to a nation to restrain evil. A nation left to itself will destroy itself. One of the ways God restrains evil is through rulers that rule justly and in the fear of God. This brings great blessing on a nation. But if that nation rebels against God repeatedly, God can remove that restraint as a judgment. By giving a nation the ruler they deserve, as he did with Saul, or by allowing Satan to let their leader fail as he did with David. And we see this in Proverbs 28 and 2. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will continue. So again, this raises the question of why the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. Well, we aren't specifically told, but I believe we don't, it's not a stretch to say that it was because of the rebellion of the nation. Look, they had already, um, in chapter 20, uh, again, for the second time, started an insurrection against David uh, with um, Sheba, the son of Bichri. And prior to that, they had um, made David's son Absalom their king and sought to kill David. Prior to that, they had... um, hunted David under Saul for years, trying to kill God's anointed. And even the history I gave you before shows the repeated rebellion of God's people. And God's servant, Stephen, when he is schooling the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, and giving them a history lesson, he points out their history of rebellion. And he says this in Acts 7 and 1 In verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Whereupon they stoned Stephen. And this, I believe, was the problem. <clears throat> there was an ongoing pattern of rebellion among Israel. David was a good king. And under his just reign, Israel was restrained and kept from feeling the full effects of the rebellion. But there was nothing converted in the heart of Israel. This was the history of the nation, unless we think that the Gentile nations did any better, we need only look at Romans 2 to quickly disabuse ourselves of that notion. God's judgment on Israel's rebellion was to allow a lapse in judgment on the part of their leader. It is God's grace to a nation to restrain evil through just leadership, but repeated rebellion can cause God to withhold that grace, and when he does, the results are immediate and devastating. Many of us here are grieved about the state of our nation. Certain laws that have been brought in and laws that are being proposed that are so contrary to the word of God and so contrary to anything that would be brought forward by those that realize that they rule under God. But we sometimes forget that the root cause is not just ignorance or differences in ideology. It's God's judgment on a rebellious nation that has forgotten him. And when we fail to look, we fail to realize that, we look merely for practical solutions, new leadership and common sense strategies. But we've already seen that God withholds his restraining hand even when there is a good leader. Even good leaders can fail. And Joab provides us evidence that common sense, common sense can't save the day either. Joab recoils at David's plan, but Joab was not a godly man. He would break God's commandments in a heartbeat if he felt, felt that it would serve his purposes. But David's decision made no sense to him. For Joab, he was, a, he was street smart. He was a man who had good common sense. And he wasn't going to take a, a, a risk at angering God if he couldn't see the return in it. And so he advised David vehemently against this. As they say, even a, a broken clock is right twice a day. But the thing was that no counselor, no counselor was going to be able, with their natural wisdom, was going to be able to thwart what God had put into motion. No counselor, no matter how wise, no matter how much earthly wisdom they had, was going to be able to thwart something that was from the Lord. No expert was going to do that. Pastor Mike talked in his prayer about the experts of the day. Joab, to me, represents an expert. And we make much of experts today. Healthcare experts, technology experts, foreign policy experts, you name it. And we think we are safe in the hands of an expert. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. We don't put a premium on ignorance. And there is benefit in seeking out wise counsel from educated people. But my point is that that alone will not carry the day. What is needed is wisdom from above. Discernment that is guided by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And we sometimes feel powerless to do anything to arrest the course of our country. But I believe that there has never been a time in history where Christians are needed more than they are today. And it isn't just our vote, and it isn't just our activism. We can pray for our leaders that God will use them to restrain evil. We can honor them as we are told to and obey them in the things where scripture allows us to obey them. And we can model godliness in our communities, in our work and in our school. And we can pray. We can pray that God will bring our nation to repentance for repentance is indeed a gift from God. And that takes us to our second point, God's gift of repentance. <clears throat> well, after nine months and 20 days, David receives his goal. He receives his reward, the, um, the results of the census. But having received the fruit of sin, he finds it to be bitter. John Flavelle puts it, and I quote, It is urged that the commission of sin will afford you pleasure. Suppose this were true. Will the accusing and condemning rebukes of conscience be pleasant too? Is there pleasure in the scourges of conscience? If so, why did Peter weep so bitterly? Why did David cry out of broken bones? Maybe this is a good time for me to talk to some of the children. You've been listening patiently there and some of you coloring pictures. And at this point, I just want to get you to look up and look at me for a second. It isn't just kings that are tempted, is it? You have temptations too. And sometimes Satan whispers into your ear, it will be worth it. Just do it. God will forgive you. It will be worth it. Just do it this once. You know, it never pays. I can promise you as an older person, there will never be a time in your life Where you will be able to say, my sin was worth it. And so what we need to do, don't we, even as small children, before we go to school, before we start a day, is to say, Lord, keep me. Keep me from being deceived by temptation. Will you do that? If you do that now, if you start that now in your life and you do that every day, oh, the sorrow. Oh, the heartbreak that you will be spared if you ask God to keep you, to keep you from temptation. Well, we can be thankful that God blessed David with a, a tender heart, with a sensitive conscience. Thank God for a sensitive conscience. It is a gift from God. Thank God for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We all know what it is to have a bad conscience. But what do you do about a bad conscience? Do you repress it? Like, I believe that much of the mental illness that we see in the world today is because, is the outworkings of a guilty conscience. But what is the answer to a guilty conscience? Well, the world feels that the answer is to rewrite the law so that there's no such thing as sin. But while you may be able to rewrite the laws governing society, you cannot rewrite the demands of the law that are written upon your heart. For your conscience declares them to you unless, unless, by constant neglect, your conscience becomes seared. And that is a state from which there is no return. So if your conscience pains you this morning, thank God that it still works, for there's still hope for you. But there is a greater gift than conscience and that is the gift of repentance for it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And to his failing servant God grants that gift and David says, Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And notice it was to the Lord he said it. And notice it was without excuse and without qualification. And that is what true repentance is. It's recognizing that all sin is first against the Lord and then openly acknowledge this, all acknowledging the sin and taking responsibility for it. It was at this point where David's conscience was set free. Now, there was still consequences to pay to be endured, but with his conscience set free, David is able to navigate the terrible decision he has to make. Three years, three months Three days, famine, fleeing, or pestilence. It's a terrible decision. But when your conscience is set free, the answer is clear. Run to God. Even in the consequences of your sins against God, run to God. He can be trusted. No one else can. Well, you could say, well, why why didn't God just forgive David? Or why didn't he just remove the consequences? Well, God is gracious, and God is abounding in mercy, but he's also holy. And his righteous character will not allow him to just pass over sin. But there's another point here, too, and I don't want you to miss this. God was not only dealing with a repentant David. He was dealing with a rebellious people. There had already been two insurrections. There was an element in Israel that needed to be dealt with, and if if David's kingdom was going to survive... And sometimes the difficulties that God brings us through are providential. We may not understand why God allows some obstacle in our path that keeps us from achieving our goals. We may not understand why God would allow some accident or sickness. But God is working at levels that we can't possibly understand. And in those times of doubt and uncertainty, we need to hang on to the promise that all things... All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And this choice that David was forced to make manifested his true character and the reality of his repentance. If his sin had been to rely on his own military might, he shows the truth of his repentance by falling into the hands of God. It didn't matter how large his army, God was his refuge, God was his strength, and he would run to him. Now, fleeing would have put him at the mercy of his enemies, and a famine would have put him, made him dependent for food on the surrounding nations. But pestilence put him squarely in the hands of God. And the choice also manifested David's shepherd heart. As king, he could easily insulate himself from the effects of a famine, right? And pretty easily insulate himself from the effects of an enemy attack. But pestilence doesn't discern persons. Pestilence was just as much an issue for the king in the palace as it was for the peasant in the field. And David would not insulate himself from what his people were being Uh, required to go through as a result of his sin. And there's so much to be learned from this, isn't there? How do we make difficult decisions? Do we look for the path that is easiest for us? Do we look for the path that requires the least dependence upon God and require us to take the least amount of risk? Or do we seek the blessing of others at our own expense and take risks that that Cast us upon God. Well, the plague falls on all the cities of Israel by the hand of the angel, and 70,000 people die. But when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem, the Lord relented. And this takes us to our third and final point, God's grace. God's grace in relenting. God loved the city of Jerusalem. He He still does. Daniel referred to it as God's holy hill, the city that was called by his name. And when he came to it, in judgment, he remembered mercy. And he had compassion on the people, and he told the angel, it is enough. But David, upon seeing all the sorrow, all the carnage that his sin had brought, and not knowing that the judgment was passed, cries out to the Lord in agony, and he says, it was my sin, let it be on me And upon my my offspring. But these people, what have they done? What have they done? Well, David, they've done quite a lot. Actually, they're back of this whole thing. But David didn't know that. And he had a shepherd's heart. And he's willing to stand in in the gap for the people. And God heard him. And God looked down. He looked down upon that city of Jerusalem. And he looked just outside the city. And there he saw... A homely little farmstead, maybe an old barn, and a hard pad where oxen trod out the grain. The farm was owned by a foreigner, a man by the name of Arnon, or Ornon, if you look in, um, if you look in Chronicles. And it was not a place of any particular note or any significance. But to God, it was a very significant place. It was the same spot approximately 1,000 years earlier where an altar had been built that should have claimed the life of faithful Abraham's only son, but God had provided a substitute. And it was near to this spot where nearly 1,000 years later, a cross would stand where God would not spare his only son, but deliver him up for us all so that we might go free. And when God saw these reminders of the work of his son, the plague was stayed. And through this event, God reveals to David, as we see in the Chronicles account, that this is to be the site of the temple, David's lifelong ambition, where for the next thousand years the people that God would meet with his people and where they would cry out to God, and when God heard, he would forgive and he would act. So here we have a beautiful picture of the cross. The cross of Christ, satisfying the claims of a righteous God so that the sinner may go free. And here in David's earnest intercession, we have a beautiful picture of what Christ is doing for us even today. He is interceding for us with his own blood. He is at the right hand of the Father. And as our our foe, as the accuser of the brethren accuses, they did this and they did this and they did this, Jesus points to the cross and says, I paid for it. I paid for it. It's gone. And no charge can, can stick. As the poet put it, though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge our God refuses. Christ has answered. With his blood. So do you see why this is such an appropriate last chapter? Because it shows us that where sin increased, grace abounded. And that's what we need. Grace. That's what our families need. Grace. That's what we need as a church need. We need grace. That's what we as a nation need. We need grace. But how can a holy God abound in grace in the presence of such sin? The answer is the cross. Are you feeling the pain of a guilty conscience this morning? Then I point you to the cross. Are you filled with fear and anxiety this morning? Let me point you to the cross. Is your heart filled with sorrow and pain? I point you to the cross. There the plague of sin is stayed. There alone a righteous God will show you mercy. So come. Come in repentance. Come in faith. You will find mercy. You will find forgiveness. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, In the cross be my glory ever till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Every Sunday we come to the Lord's table and we remember the cross. And we remember what happened at the cross. The Lord Jesus invites us here and it reminds us of the cross because he does not want us to forget that we are so loved by him. And so he gives us the token of this bread to remind us that he gave his body for us. And he gives us the token of this wine or grape juice to remind us that he shed his blood for us. He invites us here to remind us that we are his. And he is ours. And that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, united by the strongest bond on earth, the bond of the Holy Spirit. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us hear his invitation and let's come to his table this morning. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit EzraInstitute.ca.